Hello. Before we begin, a quick note. The Boy to Sleep podcast relies on you and sponsors, which means you will hear a quick advertisement before the beginning of tonight's episode. While the podcast is free, you are welcome to subscribe for just $2.99 per month, which supports the creation of this podcast and gives you an ad-free listening experience. Simply click the link in the show notes from your podcast app. Rest easy. Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from A Medieval Burglary. This is a lecture that was delivered at the John Rylands Library on the 20th of January, 1915. It explores a royal burglary that took place in England during the turn of the 13th century. My name is Teddy, and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important. And my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Whether it be through the website or your podcast app. One of the most rewarding aspects of this podcast is hearing from all of the listeners who found the podcast beneficial in helping them get a good night's rest. Thank you to all of the Spotify listeners who took time to leave a response in the episode Q&A. On the most recent episode, number 271, thank you to Paige, Majin, Dreamwater, Joseph and Miss Manda for your lovely comments. And of course, to everyone else who left comments in the previous Spotify episodes during the week. Thank you also to the listeners who wrote me via the website and also left a review in iTunes. And as always, a very big thank you to all existing patrons on Patreon My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone who needs it, and it's the support from listeners via Patreon and Spotify that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast, whether it's $1 or $5. Your monthly contribution allows me to continue to bring out more episodes for those who need them. Please, of course, be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you find it beneficial. And if you would like to say hello to me, you can do that at boytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. 
a medieval burglary, a lecture, delivered at the John Rylands Library on the 20th of January, 1915. The burglary about which I have to speak tonight, I did not discover by ransacking the picturesque and humorous annals of medieval crime. I came across the details of this incident when seeking for something quite different, for it happened when I was attempting to investigate the technicalities of the history of the administrative department known as the King's Wardrobe. But so human a story did something to cheer up the weary paths of dry dust, and he hands it on to you in the hope that you will find it not absolutely wanting in instruction and amusement. Now my burglary was the burglary of the King's Treasury, or more precisely, of the treasury of the king's wardrobe within the precincts of the abbey at Westminster. The date of the event was 24 April, 1303. More precisely, according to the chief burglar's own account, it was on the evening of that day that the burglar effected an entrance into the king's treasury from which he tells us he escaped, with as much booty as he could carry, on the morning of 26 April. Who had committed the burglary is a problem which was not quite settled, even by the trials which followed the offence, though these trials resulted in the hanging of some half a dozen people at least. But after the hanging of the half-dozen, it was still maintained in some quarters that the burglary was committed by one robber only, though charges of complicity in his guilt were in common fame extended to something like a hundred individuals. And in this case, common fame was not, I think, at fault. I wish first of all to explain the meaning of the sentence rather cryptic to the generality in which I spoke of my burglary as that of the robbery of the treasury of the king's wardrobe within Westminster Abbey. For this purpose, I must ask you to carry your minds back to the Westminster of the early years of the 14th century. Westminster was then what Kensington was in the 18th or early 19th century, a court suburb, aloof from the traffic and business of the great city of London. Now the twin centres of Westminster were the King's Palace and the adjacent Benedictine Abbey. The rough plan, which I am permitted to print on the opposite page, will show the close relation of the two great groups of buildings. It was much closer in many ways than the relations between the Houses of Parliament, the modern representative of the old palace, and the present abbey buildings. 
if these latter largely remain, despite many destructive alterations and details in their ancient site, we must remember that there was nothing like the broad modern road that separates the east end of the abbey from Westminster Hall and the House of Lords. A wall enclosed the royal precincts and went westwards to within a few feet of the monks' infirmary and the end of the St. Margaret's Church. The still existing access to the abbey on the east side of the south transept through the door by which you can still go into Poet's Corner, having the chapter house on your left and Henry VII's chapel on your right, was the portal by which immediate access to the palace could be gained through a gate in this wall. The space between the abbey and the palace wall was occupied by the churchyard of St. Margaret's. The parish church, or rather its successor, still crouches beneath the shade of the neighbouring minster. This churchyard covered the ground now taken up to Henry VII's chapel, which of course was not as yet in existence. In the midst of this grassy plot stood the chapter house of the monks of Westminster, with its flying buttresses and its single pillar supporting its huge vault. Then, newly erected by the pious zeal of Henry III, Westminster Abbey was founded by Edward the Confessor and substantially refounded by Henry III, who had shown immense care and lavished large sums of grandiose scheme for the rebuilding of the great house of religion which contained the shrine of his favourite saint, in whose honour he had given his son the name of Edward. The rebuilding went on into the reign of Edward I, who was not much inferior to his father, in his zeal for the church, and was doubly bound to honour his father's wishes and the memory of his own patron saint. In the closing years of the 13th century circumstances compelled Edward I to desist from this work, the king now found himself dragged into enormous expenses by the French, Scottish, and Flemish wars. He was perforce turned from church building to get men and money for his wars. The finances of England under Edward I were less elastic than under Mr Lloyd George, and modern credit and banking were then in their very infancy. Edward I though he imposed taxes which would make the most stalwart militarist of today quiver, soon found himself hopelessly in debt. To meet his burdens, the king constantly employed differentiated taxation, but the differentiation was calculated by rather a different method from that in fashion nowadays. It was differentiation according to status, 
not according to wealth. The clergy, who were not expected to fight, were expected to pay more heavily than the layman. Let us take as an instance of how things were then done, the taxes levied in 1294 when the fighting country districts were called upon to pay a tenth of their movables in taxation, and the wealthier and more peaceful towns were asked for a sixth. From the clergy, a tax equal, I think, to a modern income tax of ten shillings in the pound was demanded, and it is said that when the Dean of St. Paul's heard of this unprecedented impost, he fell dead on the spot. If such heroic efforts, I mean the king's, not the dean's, were necessary in 1294, at the beginning of England's troubles, how much worse things must have become by 1303, after ten years of storm and stress. By this date, Edward I's finances were indeed in a bad state. Historians are only now gradually beginning to realise how embarrassed the great king was in the last years of his reign. The whole of Edward's declining years were not equally strenuous, though his finances steadily grew worse. Before the end of the old century, Edward had got over the worst of his troubles abroad. He therefore determined to devote himself with characteristic energy to the conquest of the rebel Scots. Since therefore Scotland now became the king's chief anxiety, Edward made his headquarters in the north of England. In those days where the king lived there, the machinery of government was to be found. For though England in the 13th century had centralised institutions, those institutions were not centralised in a local capital. It is true that one English city was immensely more important than all the rest. London, in the 13th century, as in the 18th century, was, relatively to other towns, even greater and more important than it is the case nowadays. Of course, Edward I's London to our eyes would be quite a little place, but at a time when there was, outside London, perhaps no town of more than 10,000 inhabitants and very few of that population. A city four or five times that size was something portentous. Yet this greatness of London was due to its commercial activity, much more than to the fact that it was the capital of the country or its seat of government. In reality, there was no capital in the modern sense, for the English tradition was that the government should follow the king. It was only very gradually that the governing machinery of the land was permanently settled in Westminster or London. There was, however, 
already a tendency towards making the great city, or rather its neighbouring court suburb, a centre of permanent administrative offices, a capital in the modern sense. Thus the Court of Common Pleas had been settled in London since Magna Carta, and the Exchequer, that is the Department of Finance, had also been fixed there since the reign of Henry II. These were, however, still the exceptions which proved the rule. The office of the Chancery, which was not then a law court, but the Secretarial Office of State, followed the King. So also did certain branches of the administration, which depended on the court, and were intended, first of all, to be the machinery for the government of the King's household. In the Middle Ages, no distinction was made between the King and the Wisdom. If the King had devised a useful machine for governing his household and estates, he naturally used it for any other purposes for which he thought it would be useful. We find, therefore, the court officers of administration and finance working side by side with the national officers, not only in dealing with the household affairs, but in the actual work of governing the country. The most important of these household officers was that called the king's wardrobe. Originally, the wardrobe was, of course, the closet in which the king hung up his clothes, and the staff belonging to it were the valets and servants whose business it was to look after them. From this modest beginning, the king's wardrobe had become an organised office of government. Its clerks rivalled the offices of the exchequer in their dealings with financial matters, and the offices of the chancery in the number of letters, mandates, orders, and general administrative business which passed through their hands. The wardrobe always followed the king. In wartime, then, it was far away from London, at or near the scene of fighting. In such periods, it became the great spending department, while the exchequer normally remained at Westminster, collecting the revenue of the country and forwarding the money to the wardrobe which spent it. For five years before 1303, the king had thrown his chief energies into the conquest of Scotland. Under these circumstances, London and Westminster saw little of him. Moreover, he found it convenient to have near him, in the north, even the sedentary officers of government. Accordingly, in 1298, Edward transferred the exchequer, the law courts, and the chancery to York, from 1298, then, to 1303 York, rather than Westminster, might have been called the capital of England, and the king's appearances to the south were few and far between. 
The occasion of such visits was generally his desire to get money and to make arrangements with his creditors. From such a short sojourn, the king went north in the early months of 1303. Despite all his efforts, it was only in that year that he was really able to put his main weight into the Scottish war. When our burglary took place, King, court, and the government officers had been removed to York for over five years. Under medieval conditions, the eye of a vigilant taskmaster was an essential condition of efficiency. It followed then that during Edward's long absence, things at Westminster were allowed to drift into an extraordinary state of confusion and disorder, Affairs were made worse by the fact that even kings were not always free to choose their own servants. Thus the king's palace at Westminster was in the hands of a hereditary keeper. There was nothing strange about this. In the Middle Ages such offices were frequently held by hereditary right. Just as in the East, everybody takes up his father's business as a matter of religious duty. Earl Curzon once pointed out to the electors of Oldham that in India, there are still hereditary tailors who did their work very well. However, this may be with tailors in the East and legislators in the West, the hereditary keeper of Edward's Palace of Westminster did not prove to be a very effective custodian of his master's property. His name was John Shench or Sench, and he held two hereditary offices, that of keeper of the King's Palace at Westminster, and also the keepership of the Fleet Prison, in right of his wife Joan who had inherited both from her father. Thus, in addition to the keepership of the palace, John Shench kept the king's prison of the fleet in the city of London. As a rule, John and his wife Joan had their habitation in the prison in the city. John therefore employed as his deputy at Westminster an underling, a certain William of the palace who kept, or rather did not keep, for him, the king's palace at Westminster. However, early in the year 1303, John left his abode in the city where his wife remained, and took up his quarters in the palace. Apparently, the prison was not so comfortable a place for an easygoing officer to live in as the palace. Perhaps, too, the domestic restraints imposed upon Shench in the city were burdensome to him. Certainly, happy times now ensued in the deserted palace. Soon, John and William, in the absence of the higher authorities, seemed to have gathered together a band of disreputable boon companions of both genders, whose drunken revels and scandalous misconduct 
were soon notorious throughout the neighbourhood. One element in this band of revellers was, I regret to say, a certain section of the monks of the neighbouring monastery. For as the absence of the king and the court had left the palace asleep, as it were, so also had the monastery at Westminster sunk into a deeper and more scandalous slumber. The enthusiasm, effort, and excitement which had marked the period of Henry III's reconstruction of Westminster Abbey had now died down. Medieval men, though zealous and full of ideas, were seldom persistent. It is a commonplace of history that when the first impulse of fervour that attended a new order or a new foundation had passed away, religious activity was followed by a strong reaction. The great period of the monastery at Westminster had been during its reconstruction under Henry III, but that time of energy had now worked itself out, and the abbey had gone to sleep. The work of reconstruction had stopped from lack of funds. The royal favour as well as the royal presence was withdrawn gradually from the abbey. Moreover, a few years earlier, a disastrous fire devastated the monastic buildings and only just spared the chapter house and the abbey church. It looks as if the monks had to camp out in half-ruined buildings till their home could be restored. All this naturally relaxed the reins of discipline, the more so since the abbot, Walter of Wenlock, was an old man, whose hold on the monks was slight and some of the chief officers of the abbey, the obedientiaries as they were called, were singularly incompetent or unscrupulous persons. It followed naturally that many of the fifty monks became slack beyond ordinary standards of medieval slackness. It was both from obedientiaries and common monks that John Shench and William of the palace secured the companions for their unseemly revels. There now comes upon the scene a new figure, in fact, the hero of the burglary, Richard of Pudlicott. Richard of Pudlicott began life as a clerk, but abandoned his clergy for the more profitable calling of a wandering trader in wool, cheese and butter. England's economic position in those days reminds us of the state of things now prevailing in Argentina or Australia rather than that in modern industrial England. She had little to sell abroad save raw materials, especially wool, which was largely exported to the great clothing towns of Flanders. This traffic took Pudlicott to Ghent and Bruges in 1298, when Edward I had allied with the Flemings against the King of France. 
but his trading adventures were as unsuccessful as the king's military efforts in Flanders. Moreover, after the king's return to England, Pudlicott had the ill luck to be among those merchants arrested as a surety for the debts which Edward had left behind him in the Low Countries. This unceremonious treatment of an alien ally is a method of medieval frightfulness which may be recommended to our alien enemies. But Edward's credit was so bad that we can hardly blame the Flemings for leaving no stone unturned to obtain payment of their debts. Whether they succeeded, I do not know. Before long, Richard escaped from his Flemish jail, leaving his property in Flanders in the hands of his captors, nursing a grievance against the king, and with dire poverty facing him, he took lodgings in London, where, like many bankrupts, he seemed to have generally had enough money to indulge in all the personal gratifications that he had a special mind to practice. It seems that in the pursuit of his disreputable pleasures, Pudlicott was brought into contact with John Shench, William of the Palace, and the other merrymakers, lay and ecclesiastical, in the lodge of the King's Palace of Westminster. He had a specious excuse for haunting Westminster Hall. He was, he says himself, seeking a remedy in the king's courts for the property he had lost in Flanders. How he could find one when these courts were at York, I cannot say. But as we shall see, many of Pudlicott's personal statements are difficult to reconcile with facts. However, Edward himself soon came to Westminster, but withdrew after a short stay, leaving Pudlicott unpaid. We have seen how near was the palace to the abbey, and how the palace keeper's monastic friends formed a living bridge between the two. One result of these pleasant social relations was that the abbey of Westminster soon became familiar ground to Pudlicott. One day, when disturbed at the hopelessness of getting his grievances redressed by the king, he wandered through the cloisters of the abbey and noticed with greedy eyes the rich stores of silver plate carried in and out of the refectory by the monks, by the servants who were waiting on the brethren at meals. The happy idea struck him to seek a means to enable him to come at the goods which he saw. Thus the king's foundation might, somewhat irregularly, be made to pay the king's debts. Pudlicott soon laid his plans accordingly. The very day after the king left Westminster, Pudlicott found a ladder reared up against a house near the palace gate. He put this ladder against one of the windows of the chapter house. He climbed up the ladder, found a window that opened by means of a cord, 
opened the window and swung himself by the same cord into the chapter house. Thence he made his way to the refectory and secured a rich booty of plate which he managed to carry off and sell. Pudlicott's success with the monk's plate did not profit him for long. Within nine months, and we may believe surely this part of his not-too-voracious tale, the proceeds of the sale of the silver cups and dishes of the abbey had been eaten up. No doubt the loose life he was living and the revels with the keepers of the palace involved a constant need for plentiful supplies of ready cash. Anyhow, by the end of 1302, Richard was again destitute and looking out for something more to steal. It was, doubtless, dangerous to rob the monks any more, and perhaps the intimacy which was now established between him and his monastic boon companions, suggested to Richard a more excellent way of restoring his fortunes. His plan was now to rob the king's treasury, and his success seemed assured since, as he tells us, he knew the premises of the abbey where the treasury was, and how he might come to it. How he profited by his knowledge, we shall soon see. But first, we must for a moment part company with Pudlicott's confession, which up to now I have followed with hesitation. But for the next stage of our story, it is plainly almost the contrary of the truth. Before we can with advantage explain why we can no longer trust his tale, it would be well for us to state what this treasury was and how it could be got at. Let us begin with the word treasury. In the 14th century, treasury meant simply a storehouse, or at its narrowest, a storehouse of valuables. To us, the treasury is the government department of finance, but under Edward I... The State Office of Finance was the Exchequer, which, as we saw, was located normally at Westminster, but since 1298 at York. When at Westminster, the Exchequer had a treasury or storehouse there also, yet in its absence, it is not likely that it kept either valuables or money at Westminster. But side by side with the state office was the household office of finance, the wardrobe, and, though the wardrobe office was itinerating with the king, it still kept a treasury or storehouse at Westminster, and this, for the sake of greater safety, had been placed for some years at least within the precincts of the abbey, from the monastic point of view, it was doubtless as inconvenience that nearness to the royal dwelling compelled them to offer their premises for the royal service. Accordingly, kings not infrequently made demands upon the abbey to use its buildings. 
Thus, the chapter house became a frequent place for meetings of parliament, and at a later time it was used and continued to be used till the 19th century for the storage of official records. In the same way, Edward secured the crypt underneath the chapter house as one of the storehouses of his wardrobe. When the crypt was first used for the purpose, I do not know, but records show us that it was already in use in 1291, at which date it was newly paved. It was not the only storehouse of the wardrobe. There was another treasury of the wardrobe in the Tower of London, but this was mainly used for bulky articles, arms and armour, cloth, furs, furniture and the like. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this story and I also hope that you are feeling drowsy. Until next time... Good night.